Well guys, welcome to the Online Weekend Experience. My name's Aiden, so glad uh, that you're with us. If I haven't been able to meet you before, so glad that you're joining this way. I just talked to some people this week. Uh, glad that you guys are jumping on uh, as, as we're going through this series. I had someone this week email me. I was kind of dialoguing with them, a, a friend I haven't got to talk to in a little while. And I think I told a story about my kids last week, and he said, you got the dad look going on, man, I like it. And I'm just gonna take it as a compliment, because I'm not sure if it was or not, but I'm gonna take the dad look as a compliment. We are in this series that we've been in for the last four weeks called Culture Clichés in the Story of God. And what we've been doing, the heart of the series, is that we just want to take a look at, at the kind of moment of, of the world that we're in, kind of this cultural moment that we're in, some of the things that we inherently believe about it, and hold it up to the story of God. What we what we kind of said was that we, we kind of introduced this word cultural milieu. And we'll throw a little picture of a can uh, that I drew up here. Cultural milieu is the word. And basically what that is, is kind of the soup, kind of the, well, Dan's been saying stew because he's from Pennsylvania, but it's kind of the soup that we live in, all the different things that make up our reality, whether it's politics and media and sports and history and medicine, all these things kind of create the cultural moment that we're in and the way that we live, the decisions we make, the things that we talk about all happen kind of in this cultural soup. I was reading this week a speech by a guy named David Foster Wallace and in there he talks about, he tells this story that there an older fish swims up to two younger fish and says the water's great and the fish look at each other they're like what the heck is water? Right? Because, you know, a fish just exists in water. It just live in water. We exist in the soup that we don't always, uh, we aren't always aware of how it influences the way that we live and the way that we think. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking a little cup of the soup and holding it up to the story of God to see how the reality of the world that we're living in holds up to the story that God is telling us in Scripture. So, so what we want to do is take another look at that today. And so what we said a couple weeks ago was kind of the soup that there's two main ingredients we looked at uh, of individualism and spirituality. So there's these two different ingredients we talked about. Individualism is this idea that I am my own authority, right? In our cultural soup that we live in, I am my own authority. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to define who I am in any number of ways, right? And we also talked about spirituality, that in the midst of that, we live in a culture that's kind of spiritually influenced, right? That we kind of existentially feel connected to something greater, whether that's God or the universe, whatever it is, that's kind of in the cultural soup. What I want to take a look at today is I want to take a look at a third ingredient, and we're going to kind of walk through kind of the cultural implications of this and then what I want to do is kind of open the scriptures and look at how Jesus contrasts kind of this moment we're in, kind of informs the moment we're in. And the third ingredient we're going to throw up here today is this idea of postmodernism. Now that may sound fancy. It's about as fancy as I get. But postmodernism, and what I want to do is I want to unpack this for us for a second because I want us to kind of just start to be aware of the soup that we are in. And so I, I drew a couple boxes for you today. I want to throw this first box up here. It's almost this idea of traditional culture, right? Think of this as maybe cultures throughout time. You think of maybe Amish culture, or even Jewish culture, whatever. You almost think of this idea that the, the trajectory of traditional culture is you're born, you maybe work, you have kids, you do whatever, and you die, and your family goes on, right? And that's kind of the traditional model of culture for the sake of today, right? And then what we see is kind of scientific revolution, the enlightenment, that we kind of start to step into this modern culture, this kind of modern culture which tells us that science and technology and improvement and medicine and religion and different understanding changes the trajectory of our lives, right? That we can improve ourselves, we can improve our culture at more of a dramatic rate, right? And so we see kind of modern culture moves us up and to the right. We've kind of seen that for the last couple hundred years. And what's happened is that modern culture 
hasn't always delivered on its promises, right? That while it promised to kind of traject us kind of towards this utopia, we know that that doesn't always work out. And so what has kind of snuck in through art and through thought and through culture over the last couple uh, years is this idea of postmodern culture. And so the postmodern culture is almost more relativistic. It's subjective. It's a little skeptical, right? Because we're let down by certain things that we kind of start to define things on our own. We kind of don't look to traditional norms, but to ourselves. I, I read this on PBS. I want to throw it up here. I think it's a good definition of postmodernism. It says, postmodernism is highly skeptical of explanations which claim to be valid for all groups, cultures, traditions, races, and instead focuses on the relative truths of each person. In the postmodern understanding, interpretation is everything. Sounds like our culture, right? It says reality only comes into being through our interpretations of what the world means to us individually. Postmodernism denies the existence of any ultimate principles and it lacks the optimism of there being any scientific, philosophical, or religious truth which will explain everything for everybody, a characteristic of the so-called modern mind. That kind of sums up this postmodern thought. It's very subjective, it's based on the individual, and it's a reaction to modern culture. And we see this kind of played out in our, in our cultural soup in some different ways, right? You hear different terms in our moment, like alternative facts, right? We hear things like fake news, right? You almost see this, this deconstruction of so many different institutions, whether it's religion, whatever it is, deconstruction. We're questioning, taking apart everything, right? You start to hear obscure theories like flat earth, right? You have Kyrie Irving kind of promoting a flat earth theory, right? You see these questions of identity and of personhood and of all these different aspects of our identity. We question everything. But it makes me wonder, like, why do we become so skeptical? Why have we become so cynical? Why do we feel the need to find our own way? And I think it's because the modern culture the fact that we can move up into the right, that our lives will improve, that things will get better and we'll get happier and happier, it didn't deliver on its promises, right? You know that to be true in your own life and we know that to be true in the big picture, that if we just attain enough knowledge, discover enough, find the right medicine, then life will go well. Meanwhile, you see that the divorce rate is 50%. I just read last night, the American uh, Psychological Association, that, that children's anxiety levels now they're, the average child's anxiety levels is equivalent to a psychiatric child uh, in the 50s. There's different things, different culture. Like Britain has hired a loneliness minister to kind of deal with this epidemic of loneliness. We, we know this, but the 20th century between all these wars was the bloodiest century on earth, right? We see in our current day addiction, depression, stress, division, and the list goes on and on and on. And modern culture promised that we'd improve all these things and make you start to wonder if maybe traditional cultures didn't have it right. Maybe they knew something we didn't. Or maybe sometimes these kind of failed promises of modern culture, they, they led to hurt and pain for us, if we're honest. Not so much on a societal level, but on an individual level, that maybe the, the doctors were wrong, so we kind of Googled and became our own doctors. Maybe the, the science didn't align with my emotions, so we kind of become the scientists and find our own science and our own evidence. Something we see in our world a lot is that religious institutions can inflict a lot of pain. And so sometimes we kind of become the creator and we kind of fashion our own beliefs, our own religions, right? Sometimes we were betrayed or hurt by authority and so we cling tighter to being our own authority that many of these failed promises of improvement 
cause us to end up in this postmodern world where we're going to decide for ourselves, find the definition for ourselves. And regardless of the reason, we see these thoughts, this postmodern thought at work, all aspects of our culture, all aspects of the soup that we are existing in, right? And it leads to some language and some mentalities that, that might be unique for the cultural moment that we're in. I want you to think, as we, as we kind of just think about how that postmodern reality has kind of sat in our soup, we, we kind of boil some different cliches down out of that, the way that we see different things. If you almost take that ingredient of individualism, that I am my own authority, and combine that with kind of this postmodern thought that there's nothing absolute, everything's kind of relative, everything's kind of subjective, you boil that down and almost the cliche that we end up with is this, that you have to believe your own truth. You've heard this before. Maybe you've said this before. You just got to believe your truth, right? And while this mentality of you got to believe your own truth has kind of been around for quite some time with kind of postmodern thought, what's interesting is that that phrase, your truth, is actually pretty new. In 2018 at the, the Golden Globe Awards, Oprah gave a speech. And Oprah got up and she gave, it's actually a pretty powerful speech. You can YouTube it. And it was in the midst of the, the Me Too movement. And, and Oprah kind of talks about some different historical women and, and kind of their experiences and how they overcame. And she tells a kind of moving speech, right? It's an inspiring speech in a lot of ways. But she kind of steps on her own foot in the speech because in the speech, she uses the phrase that these women told their truth. And in doing so, by trying to validate the stories of these women by saying their truth, it almost subjectifies the, the actual realities that have happened to them. I read this in the, the Philadelphia Inquirer. It said, when Winfrey and others say, speak your truth, they typically mean something more like share your perspective, tell your story, open up about your experience, which is important. But in, but in an America that some call post-truth, semantics matter. That we end up in this unique soup. We end up in this unique soup, this new moment where we all kind of believe our own truth. We believe, that is the, the phrase of the day. That as long as you're not hurting anybody, which can be defined in different ways, you've got to believe your truth. And it's interesting how that kind of shows up because the moment of the soup that we are in, the implications of believing your own truth show up in a lot of different ways. You think about this in a social, a social moment of believing your own truth and it starts to lead to some of the questions and some of the divisions and just noise of the culture that we're in. In the 50s, even more recent in the 80s, right? That every house got the same newspaper. Me and the whole shit, we got the same newspaper, right? And so you open the news and you're reading the same story. But we live in kind of social media curated culture where imagine almost every house gets a different newspaper. Every house gets a different newspaper that's kind of edited and fashioned for the person at that house. You think about the idea, my generation, millennial, Gen Z, uh, behind me, we kind of grew up with Facebook and Twitter saying, what's on your mind? <laughs> like, you got to talk about what's on your mind. And so personalized information and the need to share our thoughts, could there be any more opportune moment than to believe your truth, right? We see this floating around in our soup. We see this kind of floating around in our social soup, but we also see this in our personal lives. I, uh, on, on 4th of July, we, we met some friends kind of during the, during the pandemic. We kind of did a Zoom group, met some uh, new friends. And so 4th of July, we went over to their house. And over at their house, my, my friend, he, he was a, he's a Marine. And he had found in his, in his uh, garage like a clay pigeon thing, like where you shoot the clay pigeons and you can shoot them with the whatever. 
That's about as much as I know about the situation. But he found this thing and he's like, hey, I got the clay pigeons out. Do you want to try shooting it? Now, I probably didn't have to tell you that I, I don't look like a person who shoots guns very often. I think I've only ever shot one gun in my life up until this point, this 4th of July. And so he gets the clay pigeon shooter out. It's him and his two other friends who are also Marines. So it's me and it's three Marines. One of these things is clearly not like the other, right? And so we're all gonna shoot these clay pigeons. He's telling me, don't, don't shoot right of that tree and don't shoot left of that tree. I'm like, what's over there? He's like, just don't shoot left of it. So we get this out. He gives me the gun, which I, 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 it's probably the most legit I've ever felt. It's me holding this buckshot gun. I don't even know if that's what it's called. A buckshot shot gun, I don't know. With these three Marines. He's getting ready, he's telling me how to shoot this thing. He's telling me, so I'm just, I'm just holding my gun up and he's gonna shoot this clay pigeon and I'm gonna shoot it out of the sky like Elmer Fudd. So the first one, I'm getting nervous. My wife is over on the deck. She's over here watching with the wives. It's me, three Marines. He loads this thing. He lets go of the first clay pigeon and I, I'm not even sure if I looked at the little scope thing, but I just, poof, poof, this thing explodes. And ladies and gentlemen, I've never felt better in my entire life. I'm standing there, three Marines, and I shoot, I shoot the first clay pigeon out of the sky. When you hurt, hit the first clay pigeon with three Marines, doesn't matter what happens after that. I'm not even paying attention. I shoot that thing out of the sky, I point to my wife like Babe Ruth. Like Babe Ruth who just hit the, the home, like I feel like a G. He shoots the second one, miss, miss. I hit the next one, miss, miss. I'm feeling pretty awesome, because I expected Honestly, probably I'd accidentally hurt somebody, but yet I shot two clay pigeons. And so we're done. I go to give him the gun back, which I almost didn't do the safety thing right. And I go to give him the gun back. He's like, man, you got one. And I said, whoa, 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 bro. I got two. He's like, well, <laughs> he goes, John Mark hit that first one for you. <laughs> I was like, what? As I was aiming, one of the Marines shot it out of the sky just to kind of make me feel good. And guys, I'm gonna be honest with you. We're not sure who hit that thing out of the sky. I don't know for sure that John Mark hit that one out of the sky. I thought it was me. But the difference is, whose truth am I believing? Because my truth, I believe that I shot that thing out of the sky, right? We become our own gods. We become our own creators, the masters of our own futures, of our own realities when we define things as our own truth and believe our own view of reality. And perhaps this is why we end up lonely and selfish and stressed and addicted is because we are the definers of our own truth. This idea of postmodern stuff, uh, it plays into art, into architecture and music and all these things. And there's a story I heard once of a, a pastor, he's a Christian speaker who was at a college university. He was down at the college university and someone's like, can we show you our new postmodern architecture building? And he, they brought him into this, the, this new building and they kind of showed him all these different, you know, steps that don't necessarily go anywhere and doors that open up into other doors. It's all kind of meaningless and relativistic and doesn't have a lot of purpose. And the guy said, well, this is a very interesting building. It's very creative. But he said this and it leads us where we want to go for the rest of the day. He said, did you do that with the foundation? Because we know that some of these ideas of believing our own truth and these relativistic things, they're fine on the surface. But the reality is that we like the feeling of things being subjective or plurality when it comes to our own life.
our own death, our own eternity, our own meaning, our own origins, our own identity, deep down, we want to know what foundation that our ladder is leaning against. We want to know not our truth, but the truth. And so while the implications for kind of individualism and postmodern is kind of this, what is your truth? The social aspect is your truth. Perhaps what's more unique is the spiritual implications of this, of this idea. The spiritual implications of believing our own, our own truth. So you take spirituality out of postmodern thought, and what you end up with is the spiritual version of believe your own truth. And it's this. It's that, that all roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. Now, I know you may be uncomfortable. You may be like, oh, pastor's going to say some hard stuff today. Maybe you believe this to be true. I'm glad that you're tuning in today. I just want to have a conversation to think about some things. The truth is that many, many Christians believe this to be, many people who claim faith in Christ also believe that all roads lead to heaven. I just, these are a couple of quick stats I just read this week. This is one by this company called uh, Ligonier. It said, in this survey, six of 10 Americans agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth said one in three evangelicals say the same. It's interesting, right? This other one I read, it said, according to a new survey, this is just from this past month from a, a ministry called Probe Ministries, it said almost 70% of born-again Christians believe that one can get to heaven through Jesus Christ or another religion. It's just interesting, right? Just a couple different, couple different samples, a couple different studies. And I want to talk about this today as we talk about this cliche of, of believing your truth or all roads le- leading to heaven is because what happens is when we trust Jesus, but we also hold this, it can water down the truth of what Jesus himself said. And we can lose some of the beauty of, of what Jesus taught and what Jesus accomplished. So I want to just unpack this for a minute. The first thing I want to show you guys real fast before we the kind of launch pad off of this is, you know, we're talking about postmodern and the society that we're in and culture and all this broad stuff. And then we come to Jesus. And we take the things that Jesus said and we stick them onto the cultural soup that we're floating in. And what I want to do is I want to just pause out, not just take samples of what Jesus said, but look at just a 30,000 foot view of the story of scripture, the all-encompassing story of the Bible, just really, really quick. We have a whole series we did on this a couple years ago I'd encourage you to check out called Long Story Short. But the story of God, kind of this arc of the Bible goes like this. We'll throw it up here on the screen for you. We see in Genesis 1 creation, God created a good world. Now, people disagree on how that happens. That's not what I'm concerned about today. What I'm concerned about today is that God is the creator and he created a good world. And then we see that God in Genesis 1, he dwells with his people. He walks with his people. That humans are present with God, the author and sustainer of life. And we are in the presence of life itself because God is life. We see that in creation. In the, in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And what we see real quick in the story of the Bible is this curse, right? That we see the serpent tempts Adam and Eve that you can be like God and Adam and Eve eat from this tree and we see sin enter the world. And this curse has played itself out all through time, all through society. We see this in a thousand different ways from murder to selfishness, whatever it is. We see that the curse is played out throughout history, and you know this to be true. We see the effects of sin in our own lives. We talk about this all the time. But what we see in the story of, Bi- of, the, of the scripture, the story of the Bible, is that God does not leave us on our own. That time and time again, God makes covenants, these promises with his people, these, these intense promises with his people, time and time again, that God makes a way to be with his people. 
these different promises. These different, he makes a, a promise, a covenant with, with Abraham, with Noah, with David, these promises that he makes ways to be with his people. And this is the story of the Old Testament, is God making way to be with his people and his people failing, and God making way to be with his people and his people failing until we come, after 400 years of silence, to the book of Matthew, where the man Jesus Christ enters the scene. And Jesus Christ was, was this carpenter from Nazareth, but he's more than that. He was God embodied in the flesh. And what happens is that these covenants that would happen in the Old Testament, these covenants that would happen would have two sides to them. That there would be these blessings of the covenant, but also these curses. That if you upheld the promise, if you upheld the covenant relationship, that these blessings would happen. But if you, if you failed, if you broke the covenant, if you broke the promise, there would be curses that would come upon you. And what we see is at the end of the life of Jesus, he upholds both sides of this promise. He upholds the side that we could not uphold. And what we see is Jesus at the cross, where Jesus takes the consequence of our sin, the consequence of the broken promises to God, the, the, the consequences of those things, and he gives us the blessings. We see the cross is kind of the center of the story of the Bible. It's the, everything comes back to the cross. The Old Testament was looking forward to the cross, and we look back to the cross. We hold to the cross as the center of the story of God. And what we see from that, after that, we see the church, that Jesus goes to heaven and he says, I want you to go and tell people about me, that we, this kingdom of God become, Jesus starts to bring it in, in his ministry, and he calls us to partner with him in the work that he's doing in the world. This is kind of where the church shows up. We see this in the, in the book of Acts, right? That God's spirit is present with his people as he brings his kingdom on earth. And what this is all pointing to, what this is all culminating to, and this is, this is where usually the conversation picks up. When all roads lead to heaven, we ignore all this. This has no bearing, but where we all want to land is recreation, when everything is made new. The story of the Bible is that God makes all things new, new heavens, new earth, and he will dwell with his people. He will restore what's broken. It's everything that our hearts long for is to dwell again with the presence of God, the presence of life itself. Now, what happens is when we find ourselves in our modern cultural soup, we only want to talk about this piece. And it's almost as if there's all these different movies playing, but we're saying, but every movie ends the same way. It's like we're watching, we're watching Mulan and The Lion King and Back to the Future and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, but every single movie ends the same way. Frodo throws the ring in the fire and everyone lives happily ever after. Like that's the ending that we post to every ending. We say all roads lead to heaven. But what that does is it negates the rest of the story. Because everything we believe about the future leverages on the past and the present. And in the story of the Bible, we believe this whole story and every piece of this from creation to recreation is centered on the man, Jesus Christ. So what I want to do today, if you guys want to open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 14, we just want to take a look at a moment at a key passage where Jesus brings these things together. He teaches something that's hard to swallow, but at the same time is beautiful. And it, 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 it's exactly where we're at today. John 14, Jesus is going to go to the cross to die. And for, from John 13 to about 17, he's, he's having this meal with his disciples, this Passover meal is... There, there's, there's tears and there's some different hardships in this conversation and Jesus gives this beautiful picture. 
And in chapter 14, he says this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to, to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and you also may be where I am. He says, you know the way to the place I am going. Then Thomas, one of his disciples, says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is, this is a pivotal passage, and I just, for the, the rest of our time uh, today, I just want to take a, a look at some of the implications of this. And I don't think we're going to answer every question today. I don't think we're going to, oh, okay, cool, that, I don't struggle with that anymore. But I just want us to ask some questions and maybe just consider some things. The first thing is we listen to the words of Jesus and his declaration of the way. We see that Jesus is the way to life eternal. That, that it's an exclusive statement that Jesus is making. He, he's, he's, not, he's not saying I am a way, right? We sing some songs, I believe you are the way, the truth. It's not like a way, a truth, like that loses its power. Jesus is making this exclusive statement that he doesn't, he's not going to show them the way. He's not going to point them to the way. He's not going to tell them about the way. He is the way. First thing I want us to consider as we, as we think about this, that so I, I, I understand, I acknowledge this, that some of you listening are like, man, I have a hard time with this. And some of it's for good reason, right? But we need to acknowledge first this, that every, every belief is exclusive. Everything we believe is exclusive. Think about this, that, that whether you believe in Jesus or in Allah or in secularism or in nothing, whatever it is, it's all exclusive. Saying Jesus is the way or saying that all religions are equal in what they teach and they all lead to heaven are both explicit truths. They're both explicit truths about what we cling to. I heard a, a pastor kind of tell this adage that you may have heard this before. But one way that, that kind of people will kind of use as an analogy to say that all roads lead to heaven is use this example of blind men and an elephant. They say all religions lead to heaven, but we're kind of like blind men who are kind of grabbing different parts of an elephant. One blind man grabs the trunk of an elephant and says it's kind of long and it moves kind of like a snake. And a different blind man grabs a leg of an elephant and says it's kind of round and sturdy. And a different blind man grabs a tusk of an elephant and says it's smooth and it's thin and See, they're all different, all different aspects of the same elephant. All these different paths lead to the elephant. And that's kind of this explanation that people use to describe that all roads lead to heaven. But that idea that, I, that, that each one of these different pieces lead to heaven assumes that the one saying that is standing in a position that they can see the whole elephant. They can see the whole elephant. They can see all the blind men. They can say, you're all correct. That the statement that all paths lead to heaven assumes that you have a superior seat to everybody else. I was on a plane a couple months ago coming home and I, I, I sat next to a, a wonderful woman. She was from India. She was uh, a Hindu and she, she, we had a wonderful conversation about her faith and she asked about our faith. She was a doctor. She was brilliant. We had this awesome conversation about just faith and, and religion and different things we believe. And what's interesting is to say, you guys all believe the same thing. I think we would all look at you and be like, Actually, in our short conversation, we, we don't believe the same thing. 
That doesn't mean that we can't respect each other and honor each other, but we fundamentally believe different things. There was a pastor named Tim Keller who's in New York City, and he was on a panel with uh, him representing Christianity and Imam who is representing uh, uh, Islam and then a, a Jewish uh, priest. And they were just having conversations about, about religion and the differences and the similarities. And they said this, he said, we all agreed on the statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, the Muslims and the Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. He said, and if Muslims and Jews are right, that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. All that to say, we all, we all believe something exclusive. We all believe something exclusive, regardless of what it is. And sometimes the position of you're all right can be a little bit more of an elevated position, if we're honest. Second thing, second thing really quickly, is that Jesus, that, that while all claims are exclusive, we all believe something exclusive, Jesus' claims are exclusive, and he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from that. It, they weren't just exclusive now, but they were exclusive then. At the time, it would have been hard for them to swallow the fact that, that Jesus was the way, because Jesus is talking to people in this Jewish culture, and they would have believed that adhering to the laws was going to be the way to God. Exodus 18.20 says, teach them his decrees, instructions, and show them the way of how to live and how to behave. David writes in Psalm 119, Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. That Jews believed that this, the law was the way to God. But Jesus came to fulfill the law and to be the way. And so when Jesus makes his claim to his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that would have been hard for people to swallow at the time. They ultimately crucified him for this, right? Jesus is saying that he isn't just a way, that he is the way. C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in his book, Mere Christianity. I would encourage you, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, get it and just read the first section. But, but what, what Lewis says in there is that, you may have heard this before, that, that Jesus' claims are exclusive, that he claims to be God, not just a moral teacher. That we either have to look at Jesus and say he was lying, he was just crazy with the history of other crazy people, he was a lunatic, he was just, he was just crazy, or that he is Lord and he is who he says he is. Jesus doesn't leave space just to believe he was a good moral teacher. That's not what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. The third thing real fast I want to look at is, is just the question. When we say all roads lead to heaven, what do we mean by heaven? What do we mean by eternal life? Do we mean the good place? Do we mean a place with fluffy clouds? Do we, do we mean a vague better place that we talk about at funerals? Because if, if all roads, if you're a good person, lead to heaven, and we kind of disagree on who is a good person oftentimes, if all roads lead to heaven, then what are we talking about when we talk about heaven? Because in the story arc of Scripture, in the story arc of the Bible, heaven isn't just a nice place. Even though a lot of Christians, we can think it's just a nice place with golden shores. It's not just a place, but it's the presence with a person. In John 17, we'll throw it up here, Jesus says this, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that eternal life in the story arc of scripture 
in the story of the Bible that eternal life, recreation, everything being made new is as much about a place as it is about a person. It's about eternal life, life abundantly, life in the kingdom. It's knowing Jesus. That life eternal in heaven is not simply about existing in a place, but being present with a person. That Jesus is the way to the Father, but he is also the beauty of true life. Now, I want to show you this real fast. We'll throw this up here on the screen. But Jesus, while he's exclusive, he's also reality. That Jesus is the way of life, not just then and there, but here and now. This, the Greek word that Jesus used when he says, I am the way, is this Greek word, hadas. This Greek word, hadas. And it means this traveled way, this path, this road, right? Jesus says, I won't show you the hadas to get to the Father. He says, I am the hadas to get to the Father. That's the exclusive statement that Jesus makes. But that same word, hadas, also means a way of thinking, a feeling, a course of conduct. It's a way of living in a given reality. You may be listening and you may be a follower of Jesus. You're like, dude, I don't struggle with this, Aiden. Sometimes what happens is we check the box for eternal life, the then and there. I'll get there someday, can't wait. We say Jesus is the way to the pearly gates, but we don't believe he's the way, the hadas, the, the reality and the beauty of life here and now. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full. NLT says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Not in our terms, not in our ways, but in his ways, on his terms. That's why we talk about following the way of Jesus. It's not just a cognitive belief, but it's a way of life. It's a hadas. It's a way of living in this world that follows Jesus, living in humility, loving our enemies, self-sacrifice, seeking the good of the other, especially the weak, clinging to the truth, embodying grace, becoming peacemakers, being gentle, bearing our own crosses, all the teachings of Jesus and the way that Jesus lives. He calls us to come and follow him in his hadas, in his way of living. And these things lead to abundant life here and now, not just then and there. Too often we put our faith in Jesus for the then and there, and then we cling to medicine or to politics or to healthy living magazines to try and live our hadas, our way here. But Jesus says, I'm not just the hadas to heaven, but I'm the hadas here and now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We orient our lives around Jesus because the reality is that whether it's a path that leads to heaven or a here and now, we are all following a way. We are all following a way. And Jesus says the claim he makes is that he is the way. I wonder if we as Christians just pray a prayer, believe a theology about the then and there, and Jesus has no role in the here and the now. If I'm honest, this is a struggle I have in my own life. Jesus, am I trusting that you are the hadas here and now? Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we test ourselves. Test ourselves. Are we walking with Jesus? Are we clinging to him as the way of life here and now? I, I am aware that today may be a wrestle for you. That today, you may be listening today and you may be someone, you're like, ah, but... I just struggle with this exclusive claim that Jesus says he's the way. I, I get it. I understand. And, I, and I'm, I'm fully aware that today doesn't ease every calm or solve every question in the least bit. 
But I hope that today is just a, a place to ask a question. To ask a question and say, man, how much of this is influenced by the soup I'm in, by the postmodern culture that I'm in, by the individualistic culture that I'm in? How much of these struggles come from the soup I'm in? Because we're all believing something exclusive. If you believe that every path leads to heaven, then you're telling all these other people that their way of believing that it's just their path are wrong. We all are believing something exclusive. But I want to challenge you with this. I would challenge you, no matter where you're at, whether you're struggling with Jesus to be the hottest, the way, the path to the Father, or the hottest, the way of life here and now, I would encourage you to wrestle with God. I was listening to a speaker this week, and he was saying, wrestling is uncomfortable. When you wrestle with someone, you're touching each other, and you're, it's just, it's close, and it's awkward, and it's, but you're close to each other. It's a story, the people, the Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, that name Israel literally means to wrestle with God. And we see that played out all through the story arc where God's people wrestle with him. I would encourage you, in the midst of, of listening to this and reading a blog or a book or C.S. Lewis or whatever it is, wherever you're at, wrestle in to Jesus. Be honest, Jesus, I struggle to believe that you are the way. How does this play out? And wrestle into Jesus. But I want us just to consider this for a second before we pray and close. What if we reframed this conversation? The way this conversation is framed is this is our modern culture with a plurality of beliefs, this postmodern culture of everybody's opinion matters, everybody's opinion is correct, you got to believe your truth, you can't say anybody's wrong, and that's the frame of the culture that we're in. And so we put Jesus into that soup. We drop Jesus into that soup and we're like, eh, it's a little exclusive with what he's saying. We frame it that way and we struggle with it. But what if we reframed and the frame was built around the invitation that Jesus is giving in John 14? What, do, we, do you believe that Jesus is good? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that the story of Jesus, the news of Jesus, is good news? Now I want to throw this passage back up here. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In this culture, when a couple would get married, they would get married. Instead of going off to wedding night, the husband would leave and he would go and he would make an addition onto his parents' house. Not the best thing in the world for us now, right? But he'd go and he'd, he would make an addition and then he would come back with his whole party and he'd take his wife back to the new place that he has built for them. And in this passage, Jesus is sitting over the Passover meal with his disciples, which was this picture of God's relationship to his people all through the Old Testament. And they're celebrating this meal that shows God's relationship to his people. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be troubled. I'm going to go as your groom and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you with me to be in this place. What if we reframed this struggle around the invitation of Jesus inviting his bride to come and be with him? Dan says this often, but the message of Jesus is the most exclusive message. But it's also the most inclusive. The door is open. Jesus says, who's coming? Who wants to come and be my bride? I want to take you to the place that I have prepared for you so that you may dwell in my presence, that you may be with me. I am the way and my way is life. 
Come with me. The door is open. And Jesus, in the story of Scripture, the church, he calls us to come and partner with him in the work that he's doing. The doors are open. Go out. Tell people to come to the party because I want to take you to be with me and to live life in my presence. What if we reframed this conversation? Not in terms of some existential kind of conversation where in our brains we're struggling, but we actually looked at the invitation of Jesus. And whether it's believing that he is the way, truth, and the life here and now, or the way to the Father, that we took Jesus up on his invitation and we trusted that he was good, that he was the way, that he was the truth, that he is the life. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we have this conversation, it's a big conversation, especially just in the cultural soup that we're living in. It's, it's, it's hard, Jesus, the, the words that you taught. Yet I pray that you would help us no matter whether we've been a Christian our whole lives or whether we're newer and we're struggling with this aspect of Christianity. Jesus, help us to see this invitation that you give us. Help us to start there, to see the invitation, to see you calling your people to an intimate relationship where you lead us, where you protect us, where you guide us, where you're present with us. Jesus, we, we trust that you are the way. We live in a world that wants to tell us that, that politics and, and technology and happy, healthy living, those are the ways. And if we succeed in those things, we will be happy in Jesus. Time and time and time again, we are let down. Help us to see that your way is truth and that your way is life. And Jesus, I pray for people that may be listening that may, may be hurt by churches. They may be hurt by cavalier Christians who are just right about something, yet there's no grace in it. Jesus, I pray that we would see past our pain, that we would see you, the one who gives us the invitation. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.